Good morning to everyone and welcome to The Well here at STSA where we are in part five of a series about Ruth and the name of the series is called... Y'all don't sound like people who are waiting for the best. You sound like people who want the worst. Y'all want the worst? Y'all happy in the worst? What's the name of this series? The series is called... The best is yet to come. And whether we're here in Arlington or across the camera over there in Leesburg, we're happy that you're joining us today. We're wrapping up this series. But before we wrap up the series, I got to tell you my favorite part of this series. I got to tell you what my favorite part has been. I have been so happy during this series because I am going to people's homes. I'm overhearing conversations. I'm getting emails and text messages from people who are in the Bible. And people who are in the word of God. And, this, and that makes me so happy. Like, I love it when someone's like, hey, Father Anthony, you know, you said this last week, but did you ever wonder why did Naomi say this this way? And how come Naomi didn't this? I love that. Or someone said, you know, uh, Naomi, uh, that there was the, uh, the, the girl who left, the Orpah and the Ruth. And maybe there was a reason why that God sent two and one left. And, what is this? and I love, love, love that. I love when we're in the word of God and it's not just a Sunday thing. But it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday thing. And even someone sent me a joke about Ruth. You guys want to hear a Ruth joke? Can they give me a little bit of grace here on this joke? Because I had to find something about Ruth. So that's not easy. So it's about Ruth. And the, the joke is this. What kind of man was Boaz before he was married? Ruthless. Very good. Somebody said it over here. That must have been a dad. Was that a dad who said it over there? Ruthless. Okay, very good. That's very good. Someone over here again. Okay, very good. Thank you so much. All right. Anyway, my point in saying all that is when we, before I get into the series, when we get in the word of God, like when someone comes to me, I've told you this before. Someone comes to me and it's like, I'm going through a hard time. It's a hard season in my life. I'm like, are you in the Bible? Are you in the Bible? Are you in the Bible? And just like, what does the Bible have to do with anything? When you commit to reading the Bible, you know what you are committing to do? You are committing to being encouraged. You're committing to being inspired. You're committing to seeing how God worked in the lives of other people like Ruth, like Naomi, and you're committing to realizing that their experience isn't that different from your experience. So that's why I hope that everyone is committed to that. And then we have a reminder here in this story and many other stories that the best truly is yet to come. And the best part about Ruth, the best part about this story, I hope you've seen this. The story of Ruth, the journey of Ruth, shall we say, is really the journey of all of us. Her story is no different than my story. It's no different than anybody's story who calls himself a child of God. And in case you're kind of just jumping in today for the first time, or maybe you heard of one or two of the series, let's take a macro level recap of where we started and where it is that we've gone so far as we wrap up this series. The story of Ruth, like many of us, starts in a land of disappointment, darkness, and despair. That was chapter one for those who remember. And that was the part where Ruth was saying, God is against me and everyone is against me because everything bad in life that could happen to a person happened to Naomi. And Naomi, you've been in that situation where you just can't catch a break, where when it rains, it pours. And it man, did it pour on Naomi, lost her husband, lost her sons, lost one of her daughters-in-law. Everything was against her. And she said, even God himself is against me. And every one of us has been there. Like you've been there. You've been there and I've been there. We've all been at the place, a loved one, who is sick and deteriorating, and there's nothing that can do. Physical illness, mental illness, spiritual illness, we've all been there. We've all been in the place where the hits just keep on coming. One financial hit after another financial hit, after another one, after another one, after another one. You're like, God, I just can't take it anymore. When does it stop? 
Maybe you've been at the place where you've been praying for a child. Or maybe God has opened a womb and you've had a child, but every time you try that second one, that's a miscarriage, and then another miscarriage, and another miscarriage. Then you look around, especially around here at this place. Babies are popping out like popcorn around this place, okay? And you've been in that place of disappointment, darkness, and despair. We've all been there. The way I like it, I'm trying to liken this to an experience. If you're old enough to remember this, maybe you're too young to remember this, but if you're old enough like me, you remember this idea of being lost. You ever been lost? Remember when we were kids, we were lost before cell phones. So lost meant that we went to the mall with our parents and we got separated and we had no way to find them. That they would be in one store and there's a million people. And if you've ever been in this experience of being lost, it's the worst. Like I remember one time I was probably like eight, seven years old, something like that. It's like two minutes of hell. Because you feel so alone. You feel like I got no one. Like even my parents, they can't, like no one can help me. I'm just here in the sea of people and I don't know what's going on. Well, that's how Naomi felt in the beginning and we've all been there. That's the story of all of us. But that's why the theme of chapter one was the theme of this series. And what we learned is this. Say this with me. Just around the corner from the worst is God's best. Say it now. That was chapter one. Where even though we're in that dark place, even though we're in that place of disappointment, even though we're in the place where despair and where we can't see any good, we can't see any good, we believe, God, we believe so badly we want to believe that just around the corner from the worst is God's best, that we don't see anything good right now, but we know that you are with us and just around the corner from the worst is God's best. And that was Naomi in the first chapter. And in the first chapter, we saw a glimmer of hope that maybe, maybe there's this idea that there's this relative who can marry Ruth or something maybe, and there was this potential little light all the way in the far little corner, but Naomi believed and you and I believe. And then what we saw in chapter two is that little glimmer of light and you're like, how would I ever get there? The odds of me getting there is impossible. That was Naomi. Because yes, there's this distant relative, but what are the odds he's going to be willing to take Ruth and marry her? But our message from chapter two was this. God uses natural circumstances to bring about supernatural plans. Repeat after me. God uses natural circumstances. Leesburg, I want to hear you too, all together. God uses natural circumstances to bring about supernatural plans. And that's what happened in, with, we saw with Ruth, is that there was this distant cousin, but what are the odds? Well, God has his ways. And God just happened to put Ruth, the word happened appeared so many times in this book. Ruth just happened to be gleaning in his field. He just happened to be walking by that day, checking on the employees. And he just happened to catch her eye. She caught his eye. And they just happened to have a little <laughs> rapport with each other, whatever it may be. And they just happened to exchange uh, Instagram uh, handles, whatever it may be. And they just happened and just happened and just happened. And God started working because God has his ways. And this is very important for me and for you. The great maestro of the universe, the great maestro of the universe, as he worked for Ruth, this is so important, as he worked for Ruth, he is working for you. Do you know that? That right now, right now, as we speak, whatever time it is or whatever day it is, God is working in one billion ways that you don't even see. As we speak, and we're sitting here, and you're in darkness, and you're in despair, and you're, where is God, and how come God? God is working in one billion ways that you are completely unaware of. And if you were aware of them, you wouldn't understand it anyway. So it's better you're just not aware. But God, just like you see me up here on stage, God is, is behind the curtain. And God is working and God is doing stuff. Or better, that's not a good example. The maestro, that's a better example. When you go to the orchestra and the maestro, you don't see the maestro. He's the guy down. They put him down in the pit for some reason. I don't know why. So he's down there and he's doing like this. You don't see him. You see uh, the, the flute and the clarinet and the oba and uh, whatever. You see all those things. You're like, wow, they're so great. And then what happens at the end of the story? At the end of the show, the maestro steps on stage and you see him and he bows. You're like, ah, you were there the whole time? Yeah, I was there the whole time. Who do you think told the oboe? 
Who do you think told the tuba? Who do you think told the percussion they were too much? Who do you think told you the, the world winds? Or the, the, the world winds is probably not the right word. Winds, okay? The only instrument I used to play was the recorder, okay? So I don't know what that falls into. So who do you think told the recorder to turn it up a notch? That was the maestro. And right now, as we speak, God is working. God is working. Maybe it's that door that you keep banging on, God keeps closing. Maybe God is working through that closed door. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe he's opening, working through an open door. Maybe it's that girl's name who you just keep hearing that girl's name mentioned. That's from maybe God is trying to tell you, pick up the pace, man. Go make your move. Now's the time. Maybe it's that gnawing feeling in your stomach. Just something isn't right. Maybe that's God. God is always working using natural means to accomplish his supernatural plans. But then even though God is doing and God is working and God has all under control, that doesn't mean we don't need to do our part. And that was chapter three. Remember chapter three was all about synergy and the message there, repeat after me, God's full control doesn't negate the need for my full participation. That God is going to do his part, but we got to do our part. And that was Naomi and Ruth. That after they were in darkness and it was so bad and where's God going to work? And then all of a sudden God opened his door and this is going to be fantastic. Naomi and Ruth had to roll up their sleeves and they came up with a plan and they were proactive. They didn't just sit there and cry and say, where are you, God? And they didn't just sit there and say, okay, God's going to solve all the problems. They came up with a plan. They rolled up their sleeves. And some of us, I got to be honest, some of us, this may be where we are today. We're at this stage. We're thinking to ourselves, we're waiting on God. Father Anthony, we're waiting on God. Where is God? We're waiting on God. And God, you know what God's doing? He's waiting on us. He's saying, I'm waiting on you. I did. Chapter two, I did, I did, I did, I did. And I did stuff you didn't even see. But now we're on chapter three. And chapter three is you need to do. Think of it like a scholarship. Okay, if I get a scholarship, you give me a scholarship to go to school, that's great. You did all the work. You gave me a million dollars to go to college. But I gotta do my part. I gotta show up at class. I gotta take the exam. I gotta, I, I gotta study. Well, that's, that's the whole point of this synergy is that God's full control doesn't negate the need for my full participation. And then last week, we got to chapter four. When they participated, then we saw chapter four. The godly life is never a straight line between two points. Say that after me. Say the godly life is never a straight line between two points. Even when God is in full control, it's never a straight line. God did everything. God prepared and Boaz got rid of the other relative. So it's like, boom, this is perfect. But it still wasn't a straight line. God's ways, remember we said, is less an interstate highway and more a mountain road with obstacles where you trip and you fall and windy turns and low visibility. And that's what we saw last week, and that's the story of all of our lives. Ruth and Boaz overcame obstacles, and God gave them the best, but he didn't give them the best from there. They had to work their way and navigate their way around. Maybe that's where some of us are today. We're all on the road of God's best, but we're in one of those stages. So that's what I want to say is the picture of Ruth and Naomi, man, that's a macro picture, and all of us are somewhere in that. Now, what I want to do today is we wrap this series. I want to bring this home and drive this home with one overarching message that really is a repetition of everything we've been talking about, but kind of ties it together in a nice bow. And that message is this, that what looks like the end is often just the beginning. Repeat after me. What looks like the end is often just the beginning. Imagine going to a movie and watching the first half of it. And then walking out. And then someone says, how was the movie? What would you say? I said, seen better. 
Like, I went in, there was all these, like, open things, and then the, uh, the, the, the director just left all these open things. He didn't tie any of the loose ends up. We just left wondering. So really, the director did a poor job. There's no way you read half a book, watch half a show, go to half a movie, and think anything good is happening. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you were living in the time of Ruth, which, again, is all of our story, and you were just with her for the first half of the story. What would you say? What would you be tempted to say during the first half of Ruth and Naomi's story? You'd be tempted to say, as she did, God left. If you're watching this, you would say, objectively, God left Ruth. God is not with Ruth. God forsook Ruth. I'm sorry, Naomi. Both of them, but either one. God left Naomi. God forsook Naomi. God was not with Naomi because all these bad things are happening. But here's the important part. Did God ever leave Naomi for a second? Was there ever a time where Naomi and Ruth was not at the forefront of God's mind, where God wasn't actively working, where God didn't see every detail, every tear, every pain, and God wasn't concocting a plan, and the maestro wasn't working? Was there ever a split second where any of that was true? No. But it sure seemed like it. Not only was God with him the whole time, God was with Naomi when there was a famine. God was with her. God was with Naomi when her husband died. God was with her. Her sons died. God was with her. Ruth is in that field. Okay, Ruth made the right decision. Ruth is in that field, and she's sweating, and she's gleaning, and she's like, I don't know what I'm doing the rest of my life. God was with her in that moment. It didn't seem like it, but God was with her every step of the way. There's a word that we use in church to describe this about God being in control even when we can't see him. And it's a Greek word that you may hear in the church prayers. It's pantokrator. Say pantokrator. Pantokrator. Pantokrator is sometimes translated the almighty. That's how it was when we were young, okay, and the church first came to America. It was translated as almighty. But almighty is not the best translation for it. And that's why the church said, you know what? There really is no good English word. Let's go back to the Greek word, pantokrator. But if I had to say what it, had, had to define what it means, it means the controller of all. The one who has everything under his control. And that's why you see that icon up there on the screen. You see Christ on his throne, then he's got a blue ball in his hands. What do you think that blue ball is, represents? It's not the earth. Someone said the earth. No, no, the earth is a tiny speck on that thing. That's all the creation. That's all the planets. That's all the galaxies. That's all the solar system. That's all the everything, everything, everything. That's all that's seen and unseen, invisible and invisible. And it all sits where? In the palm of his hand. The way you would carry a tennis ball is the way God carries the universe. Now, I want to ask you a question as you see that picture up there on the screens. Can you see your problem up there? Can you see it? Find me, find me your problem up there. I would, I would love to have everyone come up here and point to the size of their problem on, on this thing right here and show me the size of your problem in relation to the size of your God. That's what Pantocrator means. It means there's nothing outside of his control. It means there's not one atom, not one atom, not one molecule in this universe moves one fraction of an inch without his permission. Even the scriptures tell us that not a hair from our head falls 
without God's permission. So God's like, okay, God is like, you know, you, hair number 4,756, drop now. And then for some of us, he's like, hair number four, go. <laughs> Depending on where you are in the spectrum. No disease is outside of his hands. No mental illness is outside of his hands. No layoff is outside of his hands. No rejection is outside of his hands. No matter how many times you've been rejected, never outside of his hands. No betrayal is outside of his hands. No pain, no suffering, no war, no nothing is outside the hands of Almighty God. And that doesn't mean he's the cause of everything, but it absolutely positively means that he is the solution to everything. Because nothing he can't fix. Nothing he can't control. God, as the master chef, there's no ingredients that you bring to the chef and he's like, I don't know what to do with this. There's none. No matter what the ingredients are, the chef's like, okay, bring it here, bring it here. Bring it here, bring it here. I'll take care of it. I'll make it. Because that's God, the great maestro. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22 says it this way. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like the curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. That guy who's giving you a hard time at work, grasshopper. That pesky little problem that's destroying your life, grasshopper, grasshopper, grasshopper to God. Nothing. Anything in this world is grasshopper to God. And just because we don't see the solution doesn't mean that God has lost control. And there's actually a hymn in the church, a hymn that we say that reminds us of this principle. That God is the punter quartor. You know the hymn? Okay, we learned it when we were young. It goes like this. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the in his hands. Leesburg, I'll hear you too. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in Right? That's right. Very good. Very good. I sing. I dance. I do everything up here. Okay? I'm doing it all. Okay? He's got the you and me brother in his hands. He's got the fuzzy wuzzy bear in his hands, okay? He's got whatever it may be in this universe. It's in his hands. Nothing's outside of his hands. And our lesson for today that we learn in Ruth, we learn in Naomi, we see throughout Scripture, we see throughout our lives, is that God is in full control. And just because something seems like the end, Naomi, in chapter 1, it seems like the end, it seems like the end, it seems like the end. Naomi, hold your horses. Because just because something seems like the end, maybe it's only just the beginning. Just because something seems like the end doesn't mean it's the end. It might actually be just the beginning. That's what we saw with them. That's what we see in us. And what I want to do real quick, I want to show you three more examples from Scripture to show you that Ruth and Naomi's story is everybody's story. And it's my story and your story. I want to show you three more characters from Scripture, stories that you probably know very well. And what you'll see is just like it was with Naomi and Ruth, is that what appeared to be the end was just the beginning with all three of these stories and with all of our stories. We'll go through them kind of quick because I'm sure you know most of them. The first one is someone from the Old Testament named Joseph. Y'all know the story of Joseph. He had the most famous coat ever created, the guy with the technicolor dream coat. Joseph, for those who don't know him, was one of 12 boys born to Jacob. And Joseph was the favorite of his father, and he was spoiled. That's why he had that fancy coat. And one day... Joseph's other brothers, Joseph was loved by his father, but he was hated by his brothers. One day, his brothers, ho-hum, threw him in a well. They decided they're done with this boy. They're going to throw him in the well. And we're like, why would you do that to your brother? And then we remember in the chapter before what Joseph had been doing, Joseph had all these dreams about how he was going to reign over his brothers, and they were going to bow to him. And Joseph was dumb enough to tell his older brothers that. <laughs> that explains the well. 
One day they throw Joseph in a well. Joseph gets thrown in a well, and you would say, as the casual observer to this story, here's this guy, God is raising him up, he's going to be a great, he's going to do great things, his brothers throw him in the well and leave him there. You would say, that's the end of the story. And for sure, Joseph thought it was the end. Ain't no food down here. No light down here. No one cares about me down here. My family threw me in here. This is the end of the story. Was it the end of the story? Not Joseph. What seemed like the end was actually just the beginning. Your story, Joseph, is about to start now. Your story starts now. Because what happens now, just like we saw with Ruth and Naomi, is that, Joseph, you just got to believe. You got to believe that just around the corner from the worst is God's best. You got to believe. Do you believe that down there? It's really hard to believe it because I'm in a well, and this is the worst. Just trust me. Believe it. Joseph said, okay, I'll believe it. And then what happened? Chapter 2, God started to work natural circumstances in Joseph's life to accomplish his supernatural plans. God put it on the heart of his brothers and said, let's not just kill him. Let's make a couple bucks off the guy so we can buy lunch on the way home. So they decided to pick him up from the well and decided to sell him. And he just happens to go in Egypt. Just happens. Everything just happens with God. And he happens to end up in the house of this guy. And when he gets there, chapter 3, God's full control, full participation. Joseph is a slave in the house, but Joseph is the best slave in the house. And Joseph does his utmost to be honoring to God and to please God and to work hard. He's doing his best. And then it should be okay. He did his best. God is working. Should be a straight line to the top. No, no, no. It's never a straight line. The path, the path of the godly is never a straight line between two points. Because actually with Joseph, you work way to the top, and then that lady accuses him of sin, he gets thrown in jail. Is it the end? No, no, we're not in the end. We got rid of the end of Joseph by that time new. It's just God's road is kind of windy. And eventually, Joseph ends up in the house of Pharaoh. God arranged it, okay? It happened, happened, happened. God arranged it that Joseph ended up in front of Pharaoh. He did Pharaoh a favor that nobody else can do. He was able to interpret a dream. He became the second man in all of Egypt because he saved Egypt from famine. Egypt became one of the strongest countries in the, in the world because of it. And Pharaoh says what? Here, just, just around the corner from the worst is God's best. Pharaoh says what? It says, Pharaoh, this is Genesis 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, and there's no one as discerning and as wise as you. This is Pharaoh saying it to a Jewish slave. No one as wise as you. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall be ruled according to your word. How's that? Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. How is that for sovereignty of God? Jewish slave thrown in jail. Now Pharaoh is saying this to him. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in the garments of fine linen to put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he sent him over all the land of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. Joseph, foreigner, slave, criminal jail, second man in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. What is that? That's the sovereignty. That's Punto Crator. That's show me your problem on that ball. And show me that God is not in control. And show me that God didn't have ways. God has ways. But how? Like when Joseph was in this pit down here. Joseph, we're going to get out of this. Okay, draw me the plan of how we're going to get out of it. No one would believe the plan. No one would believe the plan to be drawn. But God has his ways. And God is working circumstances. And Joseph's doing his part. And God works out over here. Then he puts him in jail over here. Then he puts him in front of Pharaoh here. Then he says this. And all of a sudden, everyone is walking around, bowing to Joseph. Second man in the most powerful nation in the world. What's that? That's what seems like the end was only just the beginning. Number two, Moses. Y'all know the story of Moses. Seen the movie Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. Very good movie. 
By this time, this is a little bit after Joseph. The Jewish people are now enslaved in Egypt. They are slaves and they are being uh, oppressed very badly. So God hears the cries of the people and God says, you know what? I'm going to save my people. I'm going to send this guy named Moses. Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you say the famous phrase, let my people go. Let my people go. And then Moses goes and then the 10 plagues, okay, all these, the, the, these, these signs that God does and God lets them escape from Egypt and they are now in the desert and they are freedom. We're in freedom. We got freedom. Then all of a sudden they turn around and the bad guys are chasing behind them. And they got weapons, we got no weapons. They got horses, we got no horses. They got equipment, we got nothing. And they're chasing us. And at this point, you would say, this is definitely the end of the road. It was a nice run while it lasted. And even all the people said, you, we're just going to die out here. Like, we could have died over there, we're going to die. It's the end of the road. Like, there is no solution. We are dead. We are dead. We are in the desert. They're behind us. You know what God said to Moses? God said to Moses, no, don't worry. What seems like the end is just the beginning. What seems like the end is just the beginning. Moses, the story's about to begin now. But you've got to believe that just around the corner from the worst is God's best. Let me start working. So God started working, using natural means to accomplish a supernatural purpose. And God said, don't worry. I'm going to solve this. The desert is going to end soon. Moses is like, great, the desert's going to end. Keep going. Moses keeps going. The desert ends as promised. But what he sees instead? A sea. That doesn't seem like an upgrade for us. That seems like a downgrade. But God's like, don't worry. You just do your part, Moses. You just go full participation. My full control doesn't negate the need for your full participation. And he tells him this. Exodus chapter 14, verse 15. One of my favorite verses. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. I love that verse. Why are you crying to me? Yeah, I'm in control. Yeah, I'm working. Yeah, I'm a solvent. You go. You do your part. You're not just going to sit there and wait for me. Why do the people cry to me? Tell the people to go forward and do their part and trust that just around the corner from the worst is God's best. And what seems like the end today is actually just the beginning. Because Moses, what you're about to see next, when the people go, is that God opens the sea. People walk through the sea. The bad guys chase them through the sea and God closes the sea on, on top of them and they die. And now they truly are free. Now they're enemies. They're not just free from their enemies, but their enemies have been killed. And now Moses, what seems like the end is just the beginning. Moses, your story begins now. Because now, Moses, you're going to see stuff you never saw in your life. You're going to see bread come from heaven. You can't imagine that. I'm going to bring you bread from heaven. Not one day, not two days, not three days, for 40 years. I'm going to bring you bread from heaven. I'm going to be your personal chef. I'm going to put the food in front of your house. I'm your Uber Eats. I invented Uber Eats. Moses, you're going to see when you're thirsty, water come out a rock. A rock. Maybe we've heard this too many times. Have you ever seen a rock? You've never seen water come out of the rock. But for Moses, no problem. You're thirsty? I'm bringing... Like imagine right now the water came out that speaker. Water is more likely to come out that speaker or to come out that wall or to come out my shoe than to come out a rock. But that's what it was for Moses and the people. You thought it was the end. It was just the beginning. Third, we got Joseph, we got Moses. How about my man Daniel? Y'all know the story of Daniel? Daniel's a great guy. Daniel, like Joseph, was a Jewish guy living in a foreign land. And like Joseph, he had worked his way up the ranks of the government. Okay, and he had a very high position. But he also had a lot of enemies. People didn't like the fact that a Jewish guy had this higher position. So his enemies worked against him and they tricked the king into signing a decree that said that anyone who prays and worships 
any god other than the king himself be cast into the, dens of, the den of lions. So anyone who worships the king, you're good. You worship any other god, you're in trouble. What did Daniel do? Did Daniel flinch at this? No, because he knew that this king, this king is very low on the totem pole. There's a much higher king. The higher king, the one who's sitting on the throne holding that king and all of his rules in the palm of his hand, I'm going to worship that one. I'm not going to worry about that little tiny little speck there that's threatening me. I'm going to stick with the Punto Crator. I'm going to take my chances. I'll stick with the Punto Crator. I'll obey God and trust him with the consequences. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room with his windows open. I love the windows open part. It's kind of stick it to them. With the windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. He said, I ain't scared to pray to my God. I'm going to pray to my God as long as I'm here. And I'm going to open the window to put up a sign that says, look here, prayer here. I'm going to invite people. Who wants to come to a prayer meeting tonight in my house? That's, that's Daniel. He didn't care. King discovers that the bad guys tell on him. The king gets word of this, captures him, and he says, sorry, but the law is the law. Verse 16. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke to Daniel, saying, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed with his own signet ring and the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. You know what that sounds like, people? That sounds like thee? Come on, man, that's the end of the road. Don't give me any more. Like, that's the end. That's the end. There's no more. Like, what it would have been if God was going to save, it's like, we're going to go in there to the lion's den, and we're going to open the door, and the lions are all going to be dead. Thank you, God. You worked miraculously. Lions ain't dead. Lions is dripping saliva. They're ready to go. Or maybe what's going to happen is we're going to go in, and then there's going to be a window that's going to appear, and Daniel's going to and go through the window. Or Shawshank Redemption is going to give him that little butter knife thing or whatever it may be. Or maybe, or maybe something's going to happen where, 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 where the, there's an impersonator who comes in instead of... Like, there's a million things that could happen, but not anymore. That verse right there. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. Some of us, let's be honest, that's how we feel today, isn't it? That's how we feel today. There's a stone. It's blocking the exit. It's case closed. End of story. Even the king, if you noticed, said, I'm with you, Daniel, but even I can't help you. Maybe your God can help you, but even I can't help you. And some of us know exactly how that feels. Let me say it this way. No solution doesn't mean no solution. It just means no solution that I can see. Do you see the difference? We get thrown in that lion's den, and we're like, no solution. But no solution doesn't mean no solution. It just means no solution I can see. But you're not arrogant enough to think that if you can't see it, that God can't do it. You're not that arrogant, are you? Like no solution. Daniel, Moses, Joseph, all of them were in a situation where there was no solution. But I got news for you. Spoiler alert. Daniel didn't get eaten by the lions. Moses didn't get drowned by the sea or killed by Pharaoh. Joseph made his way out of that well. None of those things happened. Now it seemed at the moment that there's no solution. But no solution doesn't mean no solution. It just means no solution I can see. Because the end, what seems like the end is usually, often, just the beginning of God's work. What's for Ruth? 
What's for Naomi? What's for Moses? What's for Daniel? What's for Joseph? And most important, it is for you. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Again, great verse for those looking for a verse to memorize. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Meaning God has so many ways. Oh my goodness, my head hurts when I try to think of the ways that you, God, have for us. Like I have three ways, four ways, five ways. God is like, are you kidding me? I got ways in places you never even see. Like I could go like this and pull out a way. I got ways, I got ways, I got ways. I'm the maestro, I'm the pantocrator. What are you worried about? Just around the corner from the worst is God's best. What seems like the end is often just the beginning. And no solution. doesn't mean no solution. It just means no solution that you can see. But let me ask you a question. Let's go back to those three stories. Joseph and Moses and Daniel. What if Moses had surrendered to the Egyptians? What if as, as they're going to the Red Sea and Moses can't see a solution, Moses says, this is the end, Moses turns around, holds his white flag, and says, we, we surrender, we surrender, we surrender. What would happen then? What would happen if Daniel, as he said, we're going to throw you in the lion's den, and they're throwing him in, he's like, okay, okay, I apologize, I repent, I deny my God, I worship only the king. What if Joseph had decided, you know what? When in Rome, do as the Romans. So you know what? I'm not going to worship my, my God left me a long time ago. My, my God left me in a well. I don't need my God anymore. And he gave up on God. What would have happened? See, the theme of this series, why, it's, why I'm so passionate about it, just around the corner from the worst is God's best, I see it so often. I, I'm not saying I see it. I'm afraid that I see it. What I see is people on this road, and here they are in darkness and despair, and, and, and then the pit, and then they build themselves up, and then they believe, and they start to go, and they start to go, and then they're doing their part, and God is working in miraculous ways, and they're doing their part, and, and then all of a sudden it's not a straight line, and then it's like, come on, man, keep going, keep going. Just around the corner is the best, just around the corner. And then they quit. And say, I give up. And then God left me. God left me. Look, God left me. I'm in a well. God left me. I'm face to face with Pharaoh and his armies. God left me. I'm in a lion's den. What more do you want to say God left me? And Naomi could have said that. And Ruth could have said that. And you can say that. And you can convince yourself that it's true. You convince everybody that it's true. I said, make it true. Because just around the corner from the worst is God's best. And I sometimes imagine God up there watching, watching the story and cheering us on like, come on, we're almost there. We're almost. And God knows that once we get there, boom, we're going to turn that corner. God knows we're right there. Come on, come on, come on, boy. Come on, you're almost there. Come on, we're about to get right there. And then we get right here and we quit. And God is encouraging us. And what seems like the end is usually just the beginning. And no solution doesn't mean no solution. It just means no solution I can see. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Let's read this all together because this is one of my favorite verses in the world. All together. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. 
to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Let's make this personal. Let's make this tangible for every one of us. What are you going through right now? What problem is in front of you? What suffering is in front of you? What appears to you as if you're at the end? There's no solution to this, Father Anthony. Where are you in life where you're like, there is no way past this. This is the end of the road. And then let me ask you a second question. As you think of that pain, that broken relationship, that suffering, that trial, that whatever it may be, think of that unanswered prayer where you were just waiting. What would it look like for God to work exceedingly abundantly in that? What would it look like for God to work exceedingly abundantly in that? Is that possible? That God can do that in that specific situation? Let's not talk theoretical. In that broken relationship, what would it look like for God to do exceedingly abundantly this Thanksgiving? And that person who's got that illness, what would it look like for God to do exceedingly abundantly in that illness right now? What would it look like for God to work exceedingly abundantly in whatever it is that you're going through? Because I got news for you. Just because you don't see a solution doesn't mean there's no solution. Naomi didn't see a solution. Ruth didn't see a solution. But there was a solution. And I believe the same is true for all of us. And in case you don't believe me, just ask the bull weevil. Anybody ever heard of a bull weevil before here? A couple of people heard, okay? Are you from the South? Anyone from, probably from the South. Nope, not from the South. Just a very intelligent man is what you are, okay? <laughs> a bull weevil is about the ugliest thing of God's creation. It's a two-inch beetle. And this little beetle is not only ugly, it's destructive, especially if you own a cotton farm. Because what a beetle does to a cotton farm is like a locust. It destroys it. Okay, it eats up, it consumes the entire crop when it invades a place. There is one city in this country called Enterprise, Alabama. Anybody from Enterprise, Alabama? No, okay. I actually did this, I told this one time, and someone wasn't from Enterprise, but they were from close to Enterprise. Anyone from Alabama? Okay. Anyone here seen a map of Alabama? Okay, good, very good. Okay, Alabama's downstairs, okay. Alabama, there's a city called Enterprise, Alabama. Loves the bull weevil. It's like their city's mascot. And you say that's strange because A, it's a beetle. And secondly, when you find out that Enterprise, Alabama is actually a cotton town. It actually is their primary export. Well, at least it was their primary export. Up until the late 1800s, or one year, they were expecting a bumper crop. If you've never heard the term bumper crop, it means they were expecting a big harvest of cotton this one year. Guess who joined the party? was the boll weevil. Boll weevil came in, wiped everything out, destroyed all the cotton. What did the people of Enterprise Alabama do? They were a resourceful bunch. And they said, just because there's no cotton, we're not going to just put, bury our heads in the ground and cry. And they discovered how to plant other crops. They started planting peanuts and tobacco, and they learned how to diversify their portfolio when it comes to agriculture, which, as you can imagine, was very beneficial this year and was even more beneficial the following year when the cotton did come back, and now they had all these other skills. They were able to do multiple things. So that's why the people in this town love the bull weevil. In fact, they say this. This is someone's writing this about this. He says, all things work together for good for the Christian, even our bull weevil experiences. Sometimes we settle into the humdrum routine as monotonous as growing cotton year after year. Then God sends the bull weevil. He jolts us out of our groove, and we must find new ways to live. Financial distress, 
great bereavement, physical infirmity, loss of position. How many, listen carefully, how many have been driven by trouble to be better husbandmen and bring forth far finer fruit from their souls? That's a good quote. How many have been driven by trouble to be better husbandmen and to bring forth far finer fruit from their souls? The best thing that ever happened to some of us was the coming of our bull weevil. The best thing that ever happened to us was the coming of our bull weevil. Without that, we might still be nothing more than just cotton sharecroppers. And in case you don't believe me, if you go to Enterprise, Alabama, you will see this. <laughs> in the center of the town square. They love themselves some bull weevil in Enterprise, Alabama. And just outside that plaque, or just outside that statue, is this plaque, which says, in profound appreciation of the bull weevil and what it has done, for their place, for their city. In other words, the bull weevil for them was not just the worst, but it was the turning point that led to God's best. Now, now we've come full circle to where we started. Where we started this, this series was that just around the corner from the worst is God's best. And that's where we find ourselves right now. Some of us today may be disappointed with where we're at in life. We look at where we're at and we say, God, why? God, how come? God, you left me. But here's what I'm here to tell you. Actually, I'll invite the music team to come back up here as I do this. Here's what I'm here to tell you is that maybe what you're going through today, maybe it's your bull weevil experience. Maybe what seems like the worst today may turn out to be the best thing that ever happened. It was for the people of this city. It was for Ruth and Naomi. What seemed like this is the worst, God, this is the worst. Ruth and Naomi's story began at the worst. It didn't end at the worst. And maybe the same will be true for your story. Maybe what seems like the worst today. Maybe one day you'll look back on it and say, you know what? That was a hard period. But that was a turning point in my life. That was a turning point in my marriage. That was a turning point in my faith. I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for that. Do you believe that that could happen? Maybe it's time for some of us <clears throat> just to bow our heads and close our eyes and say, God, we trust you. God, we trust you. We trust you, God. You are the Pantocrator. And you know, Lord, that we're in a situation that sometimes seems like the end. And Lord, it is hard for us to see any solutions, but we trust you, Lord. And we trust that what we can't see a solution doesn't mean there's no solution, just means that it's something that we can't see, but you can. I want everyone right now, as we're bowing our heads, closing our eyes, say, God, I trust you. I trust you that the best is yet to come. I trust you that the best is yet to come. Let's close our eyes, take a minute of silence here, a few seconds. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a happy Thanksgiving. We're off next Sunday, but we'll be back in two weeks, okay? Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs>